A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast. Welcome to Movie Crush, a production of iHeartRadio. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Movie Crush. Flophouse Special Part 3, the final. I'm very sad that this is over, everybody, because uh, we're finishing up with Elliot Kalin, um, one of the uh, the great floppers of the three. Uh, Elliot's a great guy. He, uh, I think we've, we've spoken on the phone before, but I've never met him. Well, I still haven't met him in person, but we met over the internet via video Skype call. And he was kind enough to take time out of his busy life to talk about the taking of Pelham 123, uh, the original 1974 great, great 70s New York movie version. Not the remake, although we do talk a little bit about that. Uh, But you know Elliot's work from The Daily Show. Uh, We talk about his work on The Daily Show and how he spent his formative years uh, working his way up the ladder there. Very cool story. And Elliot's just, uh, he's one of my favorite podcasters and a good dude. And I can't think of him enough uh, for coming on the show. So here we go. Finishing out the Flophouse special, everybody, with Elliot Kalin on the taking of Pelham. One, two, three. I was listening to uh, Dan's episode. I thought it was really good. Oh, you got, yeah. You got, you got a lot out of that that shy boy, that shy guy. <laughs> Dan is a shy well, guy. He's, he's, a, he's Strangely, he's very shy on his own show, but when he's on other people's show, maybe it's because he doesn't have the pressure of having to like carry any responsibility. Uh-huh. It's like he, he's, he, he seems, it seems to free him up to talk. Well, he says um, this is a, a show where we watch a bad movie and we talk about it every week. <laughs> I mean, if he remembers to say it, if, if he remembers what, what it is. Yeah, I think he broke down your roles on the show on my podcast as uh, Elliot's the motor mouth. Uh, mm-hmm. He said, what did he say Stuart was? He said, I'm the exasperated one. And I can't remember yeah. how he described Stuart's role exactly. I mean, Stuart's basically the cool one. 
he's like the you know he's like the cool dude and if we were if it was like the burger king kids club then i would be iq <laughs> who's like the nerdy one yeah. and Stuart would be i don't remember the other I, I, the only other burger king kids club character i remember is wheels and he's not wheels because <laughs> wheels is in a wheelchair which Stuart oh. could be i mean wheels was pretty cool you haven't seen Stuart, him in person in a little while no, that's true. Yeah, he could be. I mean, he has he he had a he he no he had he had COVID, so who knows what he's doing now. But uh, there was, and uh, it's but Stuart would be a character named like Ace or like uh, yeah. like like Spike, you know, right. or like uh, <laughs> and uh, Dan would be, uh, but you know, like kind of the, the anxious one. He'd be the one right. who's kind of like worrying about everything. <laughs> now, where are you originally from? I I, re- I grew up in New Jersey. Oh, so what part? I, uh, in a town called Milburn, which is uh, it's known it's best known for three things. One okay. is Anne Hathaway, who she mm-hmm. was a year behind me in high school. Two is uh, the Short Hills Mall, where officially it's called the Mall at Short Hills, yeah, which is just a fancy mall. And three is there's a theater there called the Paper Mill Playhouse. That's a pretty fair sized regional theater. And when I was growing up there. Like my family had season tickets to it and stuff, and they would get really good performers because they're so close to New York. Uh-huh. That you could get Broadway actors to be there, and like I saw shows there with like bigger name people than you'd expect to find in a New Jersey regional theater. Like I remember seeing a show there with John Mahoney in it, and oh, wow. a show with uh, with Eddie Bracken. Although Eddie Bracken lived in New Jersey, so I guess it wasn't that imp- it wasn't that hard to get him but like seeing someone who was in movies in the 40s there performing there was amazing and like uh so we but uh but this town Melbourne it's like a upper class upper middle class affluent New Jersey suburb I didn't particularly like it there so much uh but looking back on it it was fine you know now I lived in New real, Jersey it was real like it was real like American beauty type territory even though that doesn't yeah. take place in New Jersey it was right. very much like that um, I lived in New Jersey for about four years after college. I lived in um, uh, Bernardsville, near Basking Ridge, near Morristown. Oh, okay. Oh, yeah. Milburn's very close to Morristown. Yeah, I, th- I thought yeah, it was you... sort of Central Jersey, right? Yeah, yeah. It's like Central. It's like the nor- like Northern Central Jersey. Yeah, yeah. So it's like Morristown. We'd go to Morristown to go to the movies all the time. There was that the movie theater that was in the Morristown Mall. That's that we'd go yeah. To. I went there and a there lot like, actually. And there was like a, a real tiny superhero store for there for, or a comic book store there for a while. Uh-huh. Uh, and until a, a superhero store, store that's even better. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's, it's, in some ways it's more accurate because it's not like they were like, enter the world of graphic storytelling. Oh, right. look at this. Uh, interested in an issue of American Splendor. Like it was just superhero stuff. And then finally a comic book store opened in Milburn when I was an adolescent. But before yeah. then – this town, this this store in, I think, the, in, I'm pretty sure it was in the Morristown Mall. I was just like, it was tiny. It was this tiny, tiny store. But I'd be like, can we go? Can we go? Can we go? Yeah. Can you go to the comic book store? And there was like very little there to look at or do. And I remember they had like an animation cell on the wall from the X-Men animated special that mm-hmm. was supposed to be the pilot for an animated series, but it didn't do well enough. So they it just lived on on home video for years and years. Yeah. But, uh, and I was like, ah, oh, this is, this must be the most ex- expensive piece of art in the world. How did they get it? <laughs> how did they get their hands on it? Now, when I lived there from, uh, late 1996 to like 99 ish. Mm-hmm. And I remember I saw the star Wars re-release there. That was when that came out. And, uh, we would go to dinner beforehand at some restaurant in that mall that was, 
just a mall restaurant. I can't remember the name of it. It was probably like a Hula Hands or a Ruby Tuesdays or yeah, something, I'm guessing. I think or, so. Yeah. <laughs> I spent a lot of a lot of my my childhood being taken to middle like up upper scale chain restaurants. Like uh-huh. TJ Fridays or Hula Hands or <laughs> right. Chili's or and not fast food, but like places where it was like Bennigan's or they were all named after uh, most of them were named after a fictional Irish man right. who <laughs> supposedly started this company, Hula Hands or Bennigan's or O'Shaughnessy's or uh, O'Reilly's or, you know. Yeah, that's good stuff. Um, (laughs) Now, that was that was around the time uh, I think we weren't going to the the Marstown Theater as much because there was a big Lowe's, which then became a soda. It was in uh, East Hanover, I think it was. And it was like and that was, you know, a real, real multiplex where, you know, there was tons of movies going on at any given point. Yeah. And my dad could could like drop us off and then we could just sneak from movie to movie. Throughout oh, yeah. the day, you uh-huh. know, my my dad would take us to movies there, and he would leave kind of like ten minutes before the movie was over to go scout out what was starting in the other theaters. Uh-huh. And he'd come back, <laughs> and he'd be like, "Hey, so this I remember seeing Fargo there with him, and him leaving before the movie was over. Oh no, it was on Fargo. It was a simple plan. Seeing a simple plan there, which mm-hmm. is similar to Fargo. It's yeah. you can see how I got them mixed up in my head. They look sure. the same, but uh, but uh, leaving, watching a simple plan, and him leaving and coming back and going, "Hey, a bug's life is about to start." Should we hop over to there and just being like, <laughs> I don't know if I can handle that that clash of tones. Yeah, I don't those, know if I can go straight from a simple plan to a bug's life. Those are two very different films. Uh, I loved a simple plan. That was a good movie. Oh, it's really good. It's a it's there's a whole there's a whole other direction that like Sam Raimi's career could have gone in if that yeah movie had like been bigger. But not that I don't like the way his career has gone because he's made a lot of great stuff. But uh, but it's that's a real that's a movie I should see again. I'll put that on my list. I have this list for when my son is like 14. Right. Movies I can't show him now. And I tease him with them all the time. I'm like, someday, Sammy, we're going to watch RoboCop, but you can't watch it now. (laughs) Now, how old is Sammy now? You said six? He's six now. He'll be six and a half very soon. Okay. Yeah. Now, what what, what are you diving into now movie-wise that you're kind of excited about with him? Like, we showed Ruby the Goonies a couple of weeks ago, and we thought that was maybe a stretch, but she was fine. Okay. Uh, uh, He's... It's mostly right now taking advantage of the fact that he'll watch older movies and he hasn't yet decided that they're boring yet. Uh-huh. So like on Father's Day, I've been trying to get him to watch The Adventures of Robin Hood, the Errol Flynn one for I think months now uh-huh. since I recorded it off TCM and to, for him to watch. And finally on Father's Day, I was like, for Father's Day, you're going to sit and watch some of this movie with me. And he really yeah. got into it. And so since then, every day is like, can we watch more Robin Hood? So like getting him to watch old movies especially, but like – I showed him the Iron Giant when he was too young, and he doesn't really remember it now. So I'm looking forward to showing that to him. And yeah, uh, for when he was younger, we were doing a thing where we were watching all the Marx Brothers movies in chronological order, and we never finished because we got to like room service, and I uh-huh. think he, his interest started flagging around then. And I was like, "Yeah, I totally understand it. Like, yeah, I can't. I'm not going to push the big store or Go West or A Night in Casablanca that hard on you." <laughs> but uh, the it's like I I need to sit down and come up with the movies that are appropriate for that age that I really want to show him. Cause most of the movies I'm excited to show him, I think when he's around 10, mm-hmm. he'll be able to start like Hitchcock movies and things like that. And right. But right now he's really into uh, We've gotten him super into uh, certain types of musicals. Mm-hmm. So like singing in the rain is a, is a regular thing at our house. And uh, he's in the middle of uh, we, you know, we watch movies in chunks with him a lot of times. So like he, we're in the middle of Easter parade. Right. So movies with, with like tap dancing. Uh-huh. He's usually he's usually into watching plenty of if it's got Gene Kelly or Fred Astaire and the tap and uh, there's more tap dancing than ballroom dancing then 
he usually he's on board for it, which is great because at some point he's going to be like, oh, good. Why aren't this? I could just see this on TikTok, you know, or something, whatever they're using. In the yeah, future. I don't know, though, man. I mean, I think that's good if you start him young like that with an appreciation for older films and black and white films. Uh, they may develop a taste for it. Like, clearly you did. Is that something you did as a kid with your dad? Uh, not not as much with my dad, but more with my mom a little bit. There was a period, point when, when I was about 10, and I think my, my I have a twin sister, she was about 10, and my younger brother was about six and a half or so. She was like, oh, I want to start showing you Hitchcock movies. Mm-hmm. And before then, we, we were always a movie family. Like, we would, if we were going to do anything outside the house, half the time it was going to be going to the movie theaters. So like during the summer, we'd see every movie that came out. Yeah. You know, we, we went to the movies a lot. Uh, and we would go to the video store and rent movies. And for years, the only movies I would rent were Gremlins and Gremlins 2. Uh-huh. And my parents, I think, never realized they should just buy me the tapes. And we would save much more money because it probably cost hundreds of dollars over over years for us to, me to rent Gremlins 2 over and over again. Right. But, uh, the, but Hitchcock movies were like, the first old, old movies. And then when I was around 13, I like kind of made the decision to get into movies. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, I really like movies. I'm going to really get into them. And like uh, like Citizen Kane was going to be on PBS. And I had heard of that movie, right. but I had never seen it. And so I taped it and watched it. And I watched it over and over and over again. I just love that movie. And like really loved the way the music and the and the images worked together and like how it was really serious, but there were like really funny parts and just how cool it looked, like all the crazy, like deep focus shots in it. And there were like a couple of moments watching movies that like really made a huge impression on me. And like my dad showing me Robocop when I was eight, when I was oh, too yeah. young for it. Uh-huh. And he hadn't seen it. He was like my friend, his friend who was also named Elliot. He's like, Elliot says this is really cool. So we started watching it and seeing Ed 209 just blow away that guy in the beginning uh-huh. and being like, this is the most, most horrifying thing I've ever seen. And the guy who's gets falls in the toxic waste or the toxic waste falls on him. And then he gets splattered by that car at the end. I was yeah, like, yeah. so both horrified and, and in love with it. Uh-huh. And like, uh, like that and seeing making my family take me to see gremlins two in the theaters when it was clear, nobody else in the family was interested in it and just being like blown away by how meta it was. Uh-huh. And my, my mom showing me Hitchcock movies and my grandmother, who lived in Manhattan, I would go in to visit her and she would take me to film forum to see Oh wow. like she, she took me to old movies there a lot. And we would, the, she took me to a, a double feature when I was probably 14 or so of unfaithfully yours and miracle of Morgan's Creek. And I'd never seen any Preston Sturgis movies before that. And the miracle of Morgan's Creek is still like my third favorite movie. It's like, I think it's so funny. And just seeing those things in like, you know, my friends are not talking about them. Like the only way I'm going to find out about them is either yeah. from my parents or my grandmother or literally what I would start doing is going through the TV guide and just like seeing what movies were going to be playing on uh-huh. AMC and then on TCM when we got it. And then just setting up tapes. And I still do that with, with the DVR here. I'll just go through the Turner Classic Movies Guide and any foreign movie I've never heard of, I record. So our DVR has – I'm constantly playing this game – where we're running out of it's like two percent left and uh-huh. I know we have certain like it's like oh top chef is on so i know we're gonna need to record that right so i gotta i gotta watch some of these movies fast to free up some room i'm a big top chef guy too are you watching the season <laughs> oh yeah yeah we uh we, we we it was have you finished it or no no i'm uh okay, i'm in I'm uh, italy now though Wait, it's, uh, <laughs> okay it's the it's the it's the only show that we watch like as soon as possible and 
the but seeing them wandering around Italy and just like ever it's so hard to watch it and not be like they can't do that right now just like how free everybody moves right and throughout the season when they'd be like you just won two tickets to the Olympics in Japan I you just won two tickets thing. to the Trolls <laughs> World Tour premiere and it's like yeah. oh, all these worthless oh, no. tickets I know it's definitely interesting that's um Top Chef is one of the I mean I don't even like to call it a reality show but that's one that has maintained its dignity all these years I think because they've stayed on the level and not, uh, they never sold out to, to try and increase the drama or anything. It's, it's still about the food and the chefs. Yeah. And they've, they've kind of in enhanced their, like over time, I feel like they've built dignity by, by keeping that standard going. And like this thing that could easily have been kind of like a joke, like, Oh, a top chef, like has become such a coveted, uh, I guess cause yeah. it's easier to get, to get customers when you can say top chef and you become famous. Like so many chefs have become famous off of it, but like, to see it become like a real coveted thing. And like this last season, it's all all stars. And like, you know, uh, Brian Voltaggio is there for the third time trying right. chasing after this dragon that he's, that yeah. who knows if he's going to get it. <laughs> but like, uh, the, it's, it's, uh, of, it feels like seeing there's something about seeing the, uh, old contestants come back as judges and uh-huh. different chefs that were judges before coming back and talking to the newer chefs and like chefs who have been through this process before, like it starts to really feel like, um, like the X-Men Academy or something where it's yeah. like, Oh, this is this like large family of special skilled individuals. And it's yeah. like a school and they're all learning from each other. And there's like different <laughs> configurations and like, Oh, F- Forge is coming back. Like he's going to like, how, how is he going to interact with these people? You know, like it's a, it's, it's one of the few shows that I watch where, uh, this is a weird comparison, but it reminds me of like Mad Men, where at a certain point uh-huh. I wasn't watching Mad Men for like the plot. I was just watching it because I'd lived with these characters for so long and I wanted to yeah. spend time with them and see how they like grew and changed. And so when, when these people are on, it's like, oh yeah, eight years ago when this person was the show, they were like this like hot headed young chef and now they're back uh-huh. on and they have a family and just seeing how they've, how they've changed over time. It's like. It's it's like a, maybe instead of the X Men Academy, I should have compared it to like the Michael Apted Seven Up movies. That would have been the classic <laughs> comparison. To be- <laughs> well, it is interesting when the chefs come back um, and do like a, a guest judging appearance or whatever. Like when Blaze was coming back a lot, or when they'll have one of the former mm-hmm. contestants, they always come back with a little bit of an air, a little bit of an attitude. Like, well, I'm on this side of the table now. <laughs> yeah, I made the jump. What about you guys? Are you guys going to make it here? We'll see. Hmm. <laughs> right. <laughs> A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for The Eligible Bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. 
In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And, of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for deliverance. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. What, uh, when did you get into, um, well, first of all, do you know Anne Hathaway? Were you friends? Not, not particularly well. She, like my sister knew her a little bit and like, she was a year behind us in school. So like we did not, I, I had no reason to know. And she was like the star of all the high school productions. Of and course. I auditioned a couple of times for those and did not get picked for any of them. So it was oh, really? like, <laughs> there was no, uh, but she was already like, I mean, she was on a TV show, I think when she was finishing high school or, or like a junior or something. So like. It was everyone kind of knew they were like, oh, this is a person who's like going to have a career already. And yeah. and my mom would get mad. She would be a guest on The Daily Show. And my mom would be like, did you go say hi to Annie? And I'm like, uh-huh. why? What? She doesn't know who I am. Like, what? <laughs> and my mom would be like, she knows who you are. Don't, you, the next time she's on, you say hello. And then I wouldn't. And it would make my mom so mad. But, <laughs> so like, just... what am I going to go down and say? And be like, oh, yeah, we went to the same high school. I don't really know you. Well, that'd be kind of, I think she'd probably get a kick out of that. Or she'd at least pretend like she did. <laughs> she would pretend like she got a kick out of it, probably. But there were other, yeah. there were enough other writers who were like eager to go see whatever guest was down there and pretend right. to, to like know them. And it's like, I didn't need to be one of them. Unless it was like, uh, like Peter O'Toole when he was promoting Venus, I think. Like near the end of his life, he was a guest on the show. And I was really, I, and uh, the guest booker, Hillary Kuhn, I was like, Hillary, can I meet Peter O'Toole? And she was, and she was like, let me see what condition he's in. And she was, and she was like, she was like, they say that he can't, he, you can't really, but like, 
if you want to wait outside when he's leaving the studio. So I did that. So like I hung around the studio exit when and he was leaving. Into him. Yeah. But it well, just to, just to see him, like just to see him in, in life. Like I didn't interact with him at all, but just to like, wow. just to see him and to know that I'd seen him in person. And I saw him and I was like, oh yeah, he's fit. He would not have survived a meeting with me. I think he would like my enthusiasm would have been too much and he would have crumpled. But uh, now because of age like or because a, of the drink. Oh, because of age. I mean, okay. I mean, it's who knows what, what, how much drinking contributed to his life, but he was, he was just a very old man and a very frail. He had one, he was like, it was one of those things where you see like a very distinguished old man who looks like he's already a ghost. Yeah. You know? Like it looks like he's made out of like just the most like delicate materials uh-huh. and you kind of don't want to breathe too close to him because you're worried that he'll like just blow away in the wind. And, yeah. But I would, there were, there were times when like, like Isabella Rossellini was a, uh, was a guest when I was a, a production oh, cool. assistant on the show. And there, I, one of my jobs was to open the th- studio door for the guest. So like when I was a production assistant, so like I did get to see some of them, but like to seeing her and being like, I had to stop her when she was leaving, which was very unprofessional. And I was like, I had, I love the saddest music in the world. Like, I ha- are you going to make any more movies with Guy Madden? And she was so, she seemed so baffled that anyone yeah. was, was asking her about that movie in particular. But the, uh, that was when I learned doing that stuff that like when you talk to a famous person, they really like it when you talk to them about something that, which you, you probably know the story, but like they talk, you talk to them about the thing that is not the thing everybody else talks to them about. So especially sure. like if I had seen a guest when they, when they did a theatrical production, mm-hmm. like they'd be more interested if I talked like, um, uh, Billy Crudup was a guest when Watchmen came out uh-huh. and John, John was like, I need you to explain to me what this is. Like what it, like who is this character? Like what does he do? So I was John's like watchman guy to like right. explain what Dr. Manhattan is. And John was like, well, let me introduce you to him. And he introduced me to, to him as like his, his, he's like, oh, this is Elliot. He's been teaching me about watchmen. And I think Billy Crudup had probably had enough already of a uh, comic book people yeah. like wanting to tell him what he got right or wrong about Dr. Manhattan. And so, uh, and he was like, oh, hey. And I was like, oh, I saw you in the Coast of Utopia at Lincoln Center. This this cycle of Tom Stoppard plays about oh, cool. uh, about Russian revolutionaries in the 19th century, which was an amazing play cycle. And instantly he was like, oh, really? Let me tell you about that. And it was like, oh, he never gets to talk about Coast of Utopia with anybody. Like, yeah, totally. That's like a... So And this makes Stuart and Dan mad because I'll bring up all the time. My family used to go to the theater a lot. And uh-huh. so like... I'll bring up whenever we see a movie with an actor and who's been in the theater. I'm like, well, I saw them in this, like, well, yeah. oh, Jake Gyllenhaal. Yeah. Well, when I was in London, I saw him in this is our youth. And they're like, great. Who cares? I love it, man. I mean, part of what I love about the flop house is that dynamic. And I talked to the other guys about this when, when you will uh, bring up something like that and you inevitably hear Dan kind of groaning under his breath uh, <laughs> or, you know, my fa- very favorite thing on the show. And this of course will just upset them to no end is is your songs and your singing and your oh, improvised you. I songs. Appreciate it. It's the best, man. And I rewind them and I listen to them over and over. <laughs> and it's just, you know, Flophouse has been my comfort food anytime I'm going through a, a stressful situation, uh, including quarantine. Uh, Flophouse has been my comfort food. So, oh, thank you. It's it's good stuff, and I love the songs. Keep them coming, no matter oh, oh, they, no matter they, what they, hate they say. So much. <laughs> Dan has taken to literally getting up from the table. Really? And, oh no! And like, I'll see him. I'll see him over Skype. Just get up and put his headphones down and walk away. And my fa- my favorite thing now is when I go into a long bit, sometimes a song, but also a bit, is when Stuart just goes, "Uh huh." Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh huh. <laughs> Oh yeah, uh-huh. yep, like yep, I think yep. it's, it's like it's such a slick way to to take me down. But but they like uh, I don't know. You know the the, uh, the I get a, I get immense joy out of irritating them, uh-huh. and so 
if even if people were like, we hate the songs, it's our least favorite thing. I'd be like, sorry, I can't help it. Oh, Sometimes I just know, I just know Dan <laughs> wants to get to the next segment and I want nothing more than to obstruct him. Well, and you can hear him getting more and more agitated as you go. And then the song, the song is, but in any other bit would be over. And then you start in another verse and Dan's just like, <laughs> oh my God, come on. Are you serious? Because oh, that's the favorite. That's, oh, I love it when something, when you think something is over. And then it starts up. I used to do a when I, I yeah. did stand up very briefly, and a stand up bit that I loved to do was one that I called fantasy, uh-huh. where I where that involved me. Was I say like oh, I was in bed with my wife, and she asked me to tell her my 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 biggest fantasy, and I wasn't sure what to. I wasn't sure is she ready for this, and she said, "No, come on, I'm your wife. You can trust me. Tell me what's like. There has to be some fantasy that's like so weird <laughs> you never thought you'd be able to tell anybody else." And I go, yeah. "Okay, well, get ready." And then it's just it's like. It, like a shadow hangs over the land of Kazar, <laughs> from the iron mountains of the north, where where ring eternal the sound of dwarven hammer on iron, and it goes on like that for a while, yeah. and then and I and I would try to see how long I could go with this prologue to this like BS fantasy story, and then I would uh-huh. stop, and then I'd go chapter the first, and like that was where the where the joke of it was to me, and like I did that I did that uh there was a I was on a uh, like a Daily Show like a very short Daily Show USO tour years ago, and it was so I had so much fun doing that bit for like these groups of either soldiers or or Air Force pilots, where you'd have like three people in the audience who were loving it, and everybody yeah. else was like, <laughs> "What is like? Why is he saying these things?" And but then whenever I would get to chapter the first, and I'd start that, people right. were like, "Oh, we get it." The joke is just that it's long. We don't have to pay attention to any of that. The only joke is that it goes on for a long time. Oh, that's great. Now, do you, I find myself explaining um, sort of the rules of comedy to Ruby. Uh, Like there's this, when she's on a swing uh, from the very beginning, I would act like I was on the cell phone and she would kick it out of my hands and she thought it was the funniest (laughs) thing. And she would say, do the phone thing. And I said, I'm only going to do it if you call it the phone bit. And so she started calling it the phone bit. And then, you know, if she'll do something funny, you know, kids, I want to do it like 18 times mm-hmm. after the fourth or fifth time. I'll say, Ruby, that bit doesn't have legs. And I'll explain to her very seriously. Like if something <laughs> has legs, that means that you can get a lot of humor out of it. Something doesn't have legs or the rule of threes. And I kind of explain all these things to her. <laughs> I, I should I should do that more systematically. I feel like Sammy has a real uh intuitive knack for comedy uh, I'm and has sure. since he was <laughs> since he was very young like he just kind of gets it uh and he has he so he wrote so during quarantine he's been writing a novel called the mystery of the stinky cheese and the thing that i love about this book so much is i tried to read it in a flophouse mini episode and sammy heard me doing it literally walked in and told me to stop oh, and no. but uh Every chapter, as the mystery is about to happen, or and it's very elaborate. There's this: these mice have their cheese stolen by these tigers, and they're going to fight at the tigers' headquarters, which is a volcano. And there's some mysterious figure called the Great Old Tiger. And the uh, and but every time they're about to do something, they they devolve into an argument where it's like, "Hey, stop looking at me! I wasn't looking at you. Yes, you were. Yes, you were. Stop it! You're still <laughs> looking at me. I'm not looking at you." And it's and it's literally like. It's the it's the opening scene from uh, from Holy Grail where where King Arthur is trying to get the yeah. trying to get the quest going <laughs> and they're like wait but where'd you get the coconuts from hold on a second like that, Sammy picks that picks that up so intuitively whereas uh, uh, my younger one Gabriel he's 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 doing this kind of stuff like like Ruby's doing where I have a bit where I smell one of his feet and I and I 
it smells like roses and I love it. And I smell his other foot and it smells terrible and I, yeah. and I make faces. And he's like, again, again, oh, again. Yeah. That word, man. They learn that word very quickly. Uh, forever. But it's, like, uh, it's good stuff. When Sammy was like, when Sammy was little, when he was like three, you know, we'd watch these Marx Brothers movies and then he'd want to act out the different scenes. And there's uh-huh. like the scene in Animal Crackers where Chico wants a flashlight and Harpo keeps giving him things that sound like the word flash. So he gives him a fish and he gives him a flask and he takes out a flute. And Sammy would be like, let's play the game where I'm you're Chico and I'm Harpo. And yeah, and he would call it the, because they're trying to rob a painting. He goes, let's do the painting scene where you're Chico and I'm Harpo and you, I'm giving, you want the things and I'm giving you the wrong things. And we would just act out that scene. And he thought it was so funny. Yeah. And I was like, he totally gets why this scene is funny. Like yeah. Chico wants this thing. Harpo's deliberately giving him the wrong things. And then Chico is also mispronouncing half of it. So yeah. he like, you know, it just, uh, he's been like sucking it up. He's been, he's been sucking up things through osmosis. He was playing the other day with his figures and apparently he turned to my wife and he went, that's the cold open. And then went on with the rest of life. <laughs> that's great. And I was like, oh, industry child. Yeah, it's fun at that age because it's it's perfect sort of for my comic sensibilities. Um, it, like the stinky foot and then the pleasant smelling foot. Just mm-hmm. any, anything unexpected, Pratt Falls, walking into a wall. Uh, my wife just thinks, you know, I'm, I'm a I'm a moron, but Ruby eats it up. And I know I've only got a few more years of this, so I'm I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm eating oh. it up. <laughs> it's a sad, same here. It's a sad thing when your child's sense of humor becomes too sophisticated for you. Yeah. And you're like... <laughs> You're like, don't you think poop is funny anymore? And they're like, ugh, dad. Like, I'm dreading that day. No, it's yeah, come. that's gross. <laughs> um, when did you get formally into comedy? I heard you say you were PAing on The Daily Show. Was that your sort of uh, move to try and get in there? Uh, I guess in a, in a professional sense. So, like, I've been a, I was a big – the same way that, like, uh, I was into movies at when I was young. Like I, like, I feel like I grew up at the time when it was, like, the best time to – watch stand-up comedy on television. Yeah. There were so many stand-up comedy shows and like, especially on Comedy Central was really new and they had short attention span theater where it was just like, we're going to mm-hmm. show you one bit from a person's routine. Yeah. And then, so the parts that I hated, which is when the person is introduced and you have to sit through the applause and then the person says goodnight and walks off. Since I was like, jokes, 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 jokes. I don't want this. Give me jokes. I don't want this. Yeah. Like, uh, that was the best. And so I was always like a comedy, like I always loved stand-up and sketch comedy when I was young and like I have a, I was talking about these like formative, like film experiences earlier. Like I have this, I had this, I have this like such a strong memory of knowing the name Monty Python, but not really knowing what it was uh-huh. and seeing a picture in the TV guide of the cast of Holy Grail and seeing Monty Python in their knights costumes and not knowing anything else about it and being like, I have to find out what this is. Like I was, yeah. it was so magnetic to me and going to the video store that day, and renting Holy Grail and watching the first half hour of it. And I was so excited about it that I had to call my best friend and tell him to come over to watch the movie with me. And he didn't get it at all. And our friendship kind of dissolved from that point on. Oh, wow. And but, but like, <laughs> but just be like being so inflamed by it that I had to like, I had to be like, someone else sees this, right? Like, I need to know what this is and someone else has to see it. And so I was always kind of like writing funny things. Like uh-huh. when I was a teenager, I wrote some like humorous articles for this like website for college kids and the uh, when I was uh, and in college, uh, one of my one of my close friends and I we started a, like a sketch duo and performed for a while. Where where was this? What college? Uh, NYU. Oh, okay. So I, I went to N- I went to NYU for uh, for for screenwriting 
And this was long enough ago that there was, by last semester there, there was a sitcom class that they were just starting out. Because while I was there, television was considered not worth teaching. Right. And it was, you were either a playwright, in which case you were an artist, or you were a screenwriter, in which case you were going to go to LA and get chewed up and then come back to NYU and become a professor. Like that seemed to be, those were like the two, (laughs) the two tracks that they had you on. Yeah. And, and at the very last semester, they hired a TV writer. Uh, this this writer, Charlie Rubin, who had worked on Seinfeld and a number of other things, and he taught a sitcom class. And eventually that became a bigger – now I think you can specialize in television writing at that program. Right. But, uh, the, uh, but like me – my friend uh, Brock Mahan and I, we started a sketch duo. We called ourselves The Hypocrites, and we performed for a bunch of years, and we would like rent out a theater, put on a show for just people we knew, and we would make like $100, and then you know we'd write all new material and then – rent a theater again and put on the show. We were so obsessed with like putting on new material and not redoing the old material. Yeah. So we never got, we never got as good as we could have gotten at it. Cause instead of becoming like a finely honed machine, uh-huh. we were constantly trying out new sketches <laughs> and, uh, and, uh, my last semester at, and I was already a big daily show fan. And my last semester at NYU, I interned there and they have, they luckily were, had a PA spot that was opening up one of their, one of their PAs, this woman, Campbell Smith, who's now a television executive, and uh, she was moving up to become a researcher. And so they asked me to interview for that job and I and hired me for that job. And then it was just like I was at The Daily Show for like the next 12 or 13 years. Wow. I had always wanted to be in like in movies or comedy. And it, what was funny is that while I was a PA at The Daily Show, I was still doing these shows, these sketch comedy shows as The Hypocrites. And I was like, well, The Hypocrites is how I'm going to make it. Right. Like, that's how I'm going to break in. <laughs> like, The Daily Show will pay the bills. And right. meanwhile, then I'm like a, a segment produced with The Daily Show. I'm like, but really The Hypocrites is what's going to do it. <laughs> and then like, I'm a writer at The Daily Show. And by that point, I'm like, maybe, you know what, maybe this is my career now. Maybe... Maybe no one's going to swoop in and offer Brock and me a sketch comedy show <laughs> when, when, as that was a format that was dying out. Although now sketch is coming back. So I don't know. Maybe. Now, and you ended up head writer at Daily Show, right? Yes. I was the head writer for the last kind of like year and a half of John's run there. Uh-huh. And the, uh, I don't know. It was an amazing place to be. Like I started there as an intern and I ended at my run there as head writer. And like I was 20 when they, when they brought me in. Wow. Or I think I turned 21 while I was interning right, right as they were hiring as a PA. And then when I left, I was married and had a child. And That's I, cool. I got, I got very emotional when the, the night of the last show and I was saying to my wife, I was like, I don't like, it's going to be so hard for me to find something like this again. And she was like, you're never going to find something like, she's like, you're never going to grow up at a show again. Yeah. Like she, she's like, you're in your thirties now. Like you're never going to be the kid at the show. Right. And, it was a very, it was just like a real, I, I still haven't like fully processed the full experience because it was such a big chunk of my life for such a, for a real form at a time. But I would yeah. still have like, I, I would go to friends sketch shows and it would be like, they've packed this 60 seat theater and they're loving it. Ugh! if I didn't have this television <laughs> job, I'd be able to focus on my sketch comedy. That's like, really like, cool, like, man. Your all, your entirety of your twenties was spent um, climbing your way up the ladder from PA to eventual head writer. That's an amazing story. Oh yeah, I mean, that, thanks. It's a, it's a it's certainly a story that's gotten me that's opened doors. Yeah, uh, but uh, it's yeah, it's a crazy thing. And it like, but now now of course it's long enough ago. You know, I'm 38 now, and I left the show about what five years ago. So like, it feels long enough ago that uh, it feels like it was somebody else's experience. You know? Yeah. Like I was so young then and, but even at the time I felt like a, 
like, you know, I was like, uh, like, oh, I've been doing this so long. I got to get out of here. I got to do something else. And yeah. I'm like, oh, I was such a baby. I was like, I was, I was so ready to go. But uh, it was, yeah, that was that was my whole twenties was working on that show. And so people all the time they ask me, they're like, oh, what, what would you, what, what's your advice for someone who wants to become a television writer? And I'm like, well, start out really young, yeah, so you can really take your time. It had, like someone will. Uh, a friend of my parents will be like, how do I get into TV writing? And I'm like, you can't, it's too late. Like, yeah. I apologize, but it's not going to happen. You're 65 years old and you're <laughs> a lawyer who is retiring. Like, this is not a second career you can slide into. Like, do you want to take a PA job? I don't think so. Now I think, didn't Wyatt start out as an intern too? Or did uh, I get that wrong? Not at, not at the daily show. He was, uh, he interned somewhere. Did he intern for Conan or Letterman or somebody? He, well, he interned at SNL. Oh, okay. That's yeah. right. Well, I had internet at SNL and then he was in LA for a while and that's when he worked on like King of the Hill uh-huh. and he came to the Daily Show as a correspondent and um, I owe him an email. You reminded me. Why does <laughs> someone who like the, who, uh, I don't talk to him as much as I would like to, but I feel close to and I always want to work with him again. Yeah. Uh, He's a great but, guy. Yeah. He had, he would have these stories about like, he had. I don't want to tell his stories, I guess, but he had a story about like playing soccer in the hallways at SNL and Norm Macdonald getting mad at him, I think, and they almost got into a fight or something like that oh, over wow. the soccer game that they're playing. <laughs> but uh, he, uh, I remember when he when he first started the Daily Show, I was working. I was a writer when he was starting as a correspondent, and we were working on a chat for him, and I didn't know him super well yet, and just like he seemed like such a such an outsider figure uh-huh. like being a guy who just ca- just came in from Los Angeles. And he's like, he, he was like, he's like, yeah, they repossessed my car. Cause I, I, I overcharged my credit card buying a bear costume for a sketch for a sketch show I was doing. <laughs> <laughs> he's like, I think I still have the bear costume in a storage space in LA. And I was just like, this guy's life is glamorous. Like yeah. this is like a real Hollywood <laughs> life. And now, and now when I think of Wyatt, he feels so indelibly like Brooklyn to me. Yeah, that, totally. That, that period that he was in Los Angeles is probably like a this strange blip in his life. But when I first met him, I was like, this is an L.A. guy. Like this guy. Right. That's so like, funny because why is so New York? Yeah. Now and, uh, he's a. Uh, yeah. Sorry. What do you uh, what are you doing these days? Any any things you can talk about or is it all kind of hush hush? Um, I, I can tell you about it, I guess. Oh, actually, you know what that reminded me? I, you mentioned uh, on uh, on the episode with Dan, you mentioned Jimmy Don. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, who was who was he? He and I were PAs together at the Daily Show. And we moved up together. Oh, cool! Quite a bit. So, like, uh, when you when you mentioned his name, I was like, oh, I have to get in touch with Jimmy. I haven't talked to him forever. <laughs> How does Chuck know him? But uh, the what I'm working on now, I hope I can talk about it. It's been, I mean, the show has been announced. That, but I'm right now. I'm writing on a uh, an, a new animated sitcom for Fox uh, called Housebroken. That's uh, about that's a show about pets, and the cast in it is really amazing. It's like uh, Lisa Kudrow and Sharon Horgan and Will Forte and oh, wow. Sam Richardson and Tony Hale. Like it's an amazing cast. And the it's working. This is my first time I've been working on a, like a scripted, what they call a scripted show, which mm-hmm. is a dumb name because all television shows are scripted. But right. you know, the implication is that a show like the daily show is like kind of half made up or that like a late night talk show is kind of right. like, it's super loose. Who knows what's going to happen when we're right. just like scripted down to the millisecond. Uh-huh. But, uh, and it's been a really it's, I think it's going to be a really good show and it's been a really fantastic experience. Like I love working on it. I would, I would like few things more than for it to continue on for a long time and for me to get to be a part of it for a long time. So that sounds great. Be, so stay tuned. Fox spring 2021. 
That's great. And really, animation's really a good. Uh, I'm allowed to talk about it. That's a good uh, racket to be in right now. Oh yeah, animation's the best to be in right now because you can do it from your house. That's right. You don't need to get a ton of people in a room together to to shoot it and make it happen. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, oh no, it was. This was like a. Uh, yeah, it was a real. It was a real godsend to be working on this show, and I'm really, I'm really thankful to be on it. I think it's. I mean, that makes me sound like I was. If I put it that way, I am genuinely thankful, but it makes me sound like I was struggling, which is not the case. But like, uh, but like it was, it was a real, it was a real great opportunity to get onto that kind of show because yeah, any shows that involve human beings being in a room together are, are on hold at the moment. Yeah. Yeah. That's cool that you're pressing forward. Um, yeah. well, should we talk about the taking of Pelham one, two, three? Yeah, Sure. Let's do it. That's what we're supposed to. I'm, I'm spilling all these beans about these secret projects I'm suppo- <laughs> I'm, that I'm not allowed to tell anybody about. Uh, but uh, so the t- so uh, Tangent Pelham One Two Three is a movie that I honestly, for all these movies that I've seen where I like so vividly remember the experience, I don't remember the first time I saw it. It feels like the, my first memory of it. I'd already seen it probably three or four times, and like my my strongest memory of watching it is probably. When I first started dating my wife, me mm-hmm. and my friend Brock, who I had been sketch partners with, we the two of us already loved this movie. And me and Brock taking her to see like a midnight screening of it at this movie theater in, that used to be in New York called the Sunshine Theater that doesn't exist anymore, but was a really fantastic theater. Uh-huh. And uh, the uh, just like for some reason, this movie I cannot remember when I started watching this movie, but I've probably seen it. I don't know how, like dozens of times now. Yeah. It's one, one of the few movies where I watch it. And as soon as it's over, I'm like, I should probably watch the taking of Helen one, two, three. When was the last time I watched that? I should probably watch it again. And there's a couple movies where even though I've seen them, I'm still in suspense when I'm watching it. Like yeah. in alien, when she goes back to get the cat, every time I watch it, I'm like, what are you doing? Yeah. You're never going to get back to the capsule in time. Even though I've seen the movie so many times now. That's but, such a cool thing about a movie that it can do that. Uh, after you've seen it so many times, you know, the sort of the magic of movie making where suspense can be carried over after a dozen viewings. Oh yeah. Like I know they're going to get, I know they're getting, you know, spoiler alert. They don't murder all the hostages. This is for anyone who hasn't seen it, who might be listening. That's a movie about a subway car that gets taken hostage. And yeah. the hostage takers say, give us a million dollars in one hour or for every minute you're late, we're going to kill one hostage. And obviously the bad guys don't murder a subway car full of people. But like uh, the, oh, this is the project I should have. Anyway, it reminds me. There's a project I should have told you about that makes that's much more closely related to this. But I wasn't thinking about it at the time. Uh, the But I'm still, every time I'm like, they're not going to get the money to them in time. Come on, what are you doing? Like, hurry up. And it's such a, uh, I feel like growing up in New Jersey in the 80s and 90s, the idea of New York in the 60s and 70s was yeah. this like primal myth in the background of like this crazier, dirtier, like more dangerous time that my parents and my grandparents had lived through, but which I would never know. And there's something about ugly and grimy things that in real life they look disgusting, but in movies they look really, there's something really attractive about them that totally. I can't quite put my finger on. Like, yeah. Like growing up, I always wanted, I always loved like punk aesthetic. And then when I was actually hanging out with punks, I'd be like, this is disgusting. Like there was this, there was this, this bar in New York called Mars Bar. And I would be like, I am never going in there again. That place is gross. But like, if I was, but like, um, I watched the movie, uh, Dudes for the first time recently with, uh, John Cryer, where it's like these punks that go out West. Oh yeah. Yeah. I remember that. And they're living in filth. And I'm like, awesome. This looks great. Like, why couldn't I have done that? And Uh it's like, no, you had your chance to do that when you were young. You thought it was gross. 
But uh, <laughs> this, like, but this movie so captures that feeling of like this city that is in like a bad state and yeah. it's crumbling and falling apart. And the people there are constantly mad at each other. These things that I used to take pride in as an East Coaster until I moved to LA and I was like, oh, people are really happy out here and they're right. mad at each other all the time. <laughs> like it, it feels like it captures that so well. And it's like super suspenseful, but it's also super funny. And I don't know, and it looks great. Like they did, uh, Owen Roisman, who did the, uh, who did the cinematography for it. Like they do such an amazing job of just like making everything look, making these subway cars and like, the the transit hubs and everything yeah. looks so cool. And you'll see these people running a, a late 20th century subway system using boards that are just covered in little blinking light bulbs right. that are just tracking trains. <laughs> and you're like, this is amazing. Like, it feels like I'm watching the old world, you know, die as the new world rises from its ashes. Totally. People have to live through that, that chasm, you know? Yeah. Um, it's a movie that's... Um I mean, and there are lot, so many movies that capture New York so well, but this movie is almost about New York in a certain way. Um, every character in it from the um, from everyone at command center, everyone's always angry. Everyone's tough. Uh, the 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 passengers that are hostages, the people on the street, the little wussy mayor like it's just such a New York in the 70s movie. Oh, yeah, it's so it's there's such unrelenting hostility between from everyone to everyone in the movie, like the movie where Walter Matthau is like the most laid back guy. And even he like is, like, yeah. that's a crazy movie. And like, uh, that he, uh, that like they, the hostages are like, how much are you asking for? Like they need to know, I know. how much the, the hostage takers are asking. And they go 13 million, they go $1 million. And the guy goes, that's not so good. Like, yeah. like and that, uh, that they're, you know, they uh, a, a trans officer is just walking by somebody or maybe, or maybe it's I forget if it's a transit officer or if it's Kaz Dolowitz, the, the one of the one of the transit bosses who's like walking by somebody who's been forced off a subway train by this, and he's like, "I'm gonna sue your ass! I'm gonna sue you!" And yeah. It's like, "Ah, shut up!" Like everyone's <laughs> just so mad at each other. And I think what that what, there's uh, I hadn't thought about this before, but what it what it feels like to me is it's like every character in the movie thinks they are the star of the movie. There's nobody, in, in, yeah. including the extras. They all think that they're That's the star true. of the movie, which is the way real life is and the way that New York city is everyone in New York thinks that New York is their city that they, that then it's the story is all about them. Yeah. And so like, certainly I felt that when I was walking down the street in New York, it was like, yep, I'm the star. You guys are the backgrounds. That's the crazy guy. Who's like local color for my, for this scene right here. Like where you watch a movie, like, um, like taxi driver kind of carries that captures that a little bit too, where it's like yeah. everyone in New York is convinced that they are the star of New York. And so like everyone in Taking Pelham One Two Three has like that moment where they get they do not show the deference that a supporting character or an extra usually shows to the leads, yeah. the lead characters in a movie. <laughs> like it's so there's such a lack of respect from everyone for everyone, which I love. It's like a they're in this like Marx Brothers world where nobody respects anybody, which would be terrible to live in. Which is why I live in Los Angeles now, partly because I got tired of it. Like I, it takes so much energy to live in New York. Yeah, and I was like. Oh, I'm tired every day. Like it feels like I live in like a termite hive and everyone's just kind of like crawling all over each other and you never see the sun. And but we watch in a movie and you're like, this is cool. Like I wish I yeah. lived there. You know? <laughs> yeah, you're right. There's I didn't really notice that, but there's no deference to anyone. Um there's no respect for the bosses, there's no respect for the mayor from the deputy mayor. Um there's uh there's no respect for women anywhere in the movie. It's no, well, that, it definitely this, doesn't this uh, age well. <laughs> I mean, there's things that I think the, the, the one thing that really doesn't age well for me in it is 
Walter Matthau being racist to the the Japanese uh, metropolitan the Japanese subway guys who have come, yeah. the Tokyo subway guys who have come to, and like he gets like a tiny comeuppance in that like they knew they could understand him the whole time uh-huh. you know but it's not enough that's the that's the part I, I was a years ago I was trying to pitch a book called How to Watch Old Movies and nobody was uh-huh. interested in buying it. Very rightfully, they were like, anyone who is interested in watching old movies watches them already. Like, no one is going to re- go get a book to teach them how to watch old movies. And I was like, that's a fair reason not to publish this book. I bet but, it would uh, be funny, though. <laughs> oh, it would have been – I wrote – I have to look it up. I find it somewhere. I wrote two chapters of it, and I wanted to talk about something that I was going to call the classic movie cringe. Yeah. Just like, it's going to happen. If you watch an old movie, there's going to be a moment where there's a made character where sure. there's some comment or joke where you're like, that's not okay. Like it's yeah. never okay, but it's especially not okay. Like, and, but you just kind of like power through those. So it's, it's this, the one thing in this movie that really bothers me is that thing. And the misogyny is there all over the place, but I feel like that's, that's where I'm like, well, these are these characters. I'm judging these characters. The movies, right. that I mean, these are not, so often the people who are misogynist are not like the reason that I think it hurts that Walter Matthau's doing this. Cause he's the hero of the movie, you know? But yeah. Um, and the, you know, the character that, uh, the one, the, the first guy that gets shot down in the tunnel, um, that amazing mm, actor, yeah. he, uh, I think the the line he has is he he says uh, he curses in the room or something with the the sort of new female employee, and they say to watch his mouth, and he's like, you can't even curse anymore with these women around. <laughs> he's like, how am I supposed to run a railroad <laughs> if I can't swear? Yeah, but, exactly. Uh, he's like, uh, I I I was that character. I think about him because like I love him in the movie, but I would hate to interact with that human being it's on, like, yeah on any level <laughs> yeah s- similar to how like grimy new york looks really attractive in the movies yeah like there's something about that guy in a movie i'm like this is hilarious but if I, but to encounter that person in real life and i've encountered guys like that i'm like what can i what what do i have to do to end this conversation right now like what do i have to do to never involve myself yeah. with this human being again because <laughs> he's like objectively terrible but uh, well and there's no difference for him either with um well, there's no deference to any of the of the hijackers because the guy's yeah. on the back of the train with a gun. He's like, you stop right there, man. And he's like, fuck you. I'm coming on that train. <laughs> yeah. And every everyone that talks to uh, Robert Shaw through the whole movie is just like, you know, listen here, you son of a bitch. Like, you know, oh, yeah. you need the, to give us the, more time. The guy he's uh, which guy is it? Who it's Frank, I think, is the, is the guy who uh, is like manning the desk at first. And he's like, he's like, listen here, maniac. Yeah. We're not going to do whatever you say. And it's like, he's talking, this is the, he's talking to the hostage taker. Like there's no, and what, what seems to mark Walter Matthau as weak in the other character's eyes is that he's willing to negotiate with the hostage taker. Cause all he cares about is keeping those hostages alive. But he's the only he, one I think that cares about keeping them alive. It feels like yeah, everyone else is just so focused on getting the, getting the trains moving or the votes or, and right. he's, and even he, the guy who's in, at least engaging with the hostages, even he's like, you know, you should really think of getting therapy after all this. Like, yeah. Even he is not, is not respectful. <laughs> That's a great line. It's fun. I mean, Walter Matthau is, is one of the greats and it's kind of fun seeing him play a little bit against type here, I guess. Um, and that it just wasn't a comedy, although he gets his, his laughs here and there. Uh, same with Jerry a, Stiller. Oh, Jerry Stiller's so funny in it. The part where, uh, when, uh, He's the Walter Matthau showing around the guys from the Tokyo subway. He goes, "Here's uh, and here's I oh, want Jerry Stiller's character name. I gotta look it up. R- Rico. Here's uh, Rico. That's right. And here's and here's Rico on on weekends. He freelances for the mafia. <laughs> right. And and he's sitting there with a, he's sitting there with a newspaper open. And he goes, Zach, I'm busy. Yeah. <laughs> like he's literally just sitting there reading the newspaper. But like they walk by a they walk by a 
a police officer who's like so bored that he's like drawing something on the side of a cup. Yeah. On the side of a starving It's like, here's our, here's our in-house artist in residence. Like, Walter <laughs> Matthews just like, there's, there's a line because that we're, uh, he's talking about the, the crimes that they deal with. And he's yeah. like, on any given day, the transit police deals with crimes, yeah, yeah. including, it's like murder, or loitering. And, uh, and he goes, Michigas. Yeah. And, that, <laughs> and that's not that. in the, that's not in the script. So I have to assume that he added it in or uh-huh. that it was edited late. <laughs> so I think it's so funny. Like he's, he's brought so much to it, but there's a, it's a, there, you talked about the mayor and like the mayor is so funny. Like that, the mayor, that the, the, and these characters, it's like a very ensemble movie in some ways. And that characters kind of like pop up and drop out of the movie as necessary. Yeah. That this mayor, he's sick in bed. No one, no one respects him. His deputy mayor bosses him around. And, uh, he, he's like, I'm going to go there as a show of strength. I'm going to go there to the subway entrance. And you see these police officers outside the subway entrance. Then you just hear boo. Yeah. The crowd's just booing. And the cop goes, oh, the mayor's here. And that's the last you hear of the mayor for the rest of the movie. <laughs> like he ends being booed off screen. Like, yeah. He never, he never gets his bullhorn speech, does he? <laughs> no, doesn't deserve it. Doesn't need it. Like it's such a, yeah, it's such a, it's like a, the whole movie at times is, it feels like a, uh, like a political cartoon that's come to life in some ways. And this, this is the, this is the project I should have mentioned earlier. I'm going to, I'm going to insert a plug here. Which yeah. Is yeah. A, Let's hear it. Non-organic place. For there's what I should have mentioned is there's a comic book series that I've written that is going to come out next year from aftershock comics called maniac of New York, where I basically was like, I wanted to do uh, kind of like, kind of what if there was a, in some ways, what if there was a version of uh, Jason takes Manhattan that was, that actually was in New York right. and didn't spend most of its time in Vancouver, but like how the way that uh, problems that show up nowadays, it seems like there's always, there's always like a big burst of attention. And then it kind of becomes this widespread idea that it's kind of easier to live with a problem right. than to actually try to solve it. Uh-huh. And so there's this kind of like uh, this mask, you know, immor- this masked unkillable slasher that's rampaging through New York and it, nobody could solve the problem in the first couple of weeks. So now it's years later and it's just a thing that New Yorkers have to deal with. Uh-huh. And the, and the, <laughs> like you may end up the New York one rail and road report now also has a tracker for the maniac where it's like the maniac was sighted in lower Manhattan. So like, if you work there, maybe stay home today. Right. But, uh, <laughs> the, and in this, in the first storyline in the series, he gets, loose on a subway train and the whole, and the whole thing I was like, I was like, Oh, I want to do the taking of Pelham one, two, three, but with like a slasher, a slasher murderer, but also, uh, trying to, the way that taking Pelham one, two, three is about kind of like when there's a crisis, everyone is just kind of, they can't lose sight of their immediate interest, you know? Yeah. And it's, it's, kind it's of very lo-fi doing, that way. Yeah. And this, and this, uh, and this storyline is kind of similar. So Maniac of New York from Aftershock Comics, written by me, <laughs> coming out in February of 2021, I guess. So maybe don't release this episode until okay. 2021. I realize I'm promoting a lot of stuff for next year. Oh, well, but, uh, we could re-release it. You never know. Yeah, yeah, there you go. Yeah, perfect. Oh, great, great. Excellent. Yeah, this is the this is the advance buzz. And then, but uh, the, yeah, there's a, that like something objectively terrible happens. Yeah. And all that the people in different, areas of power can think of is how does this affect me and yeah. my priorities? Like my job is not to save people's lives. My job is to keep a train running. Right. So how does this affect the train? I'm the mayor. My job is to stay mayor and be reelected. So how does this affect that? Whereas Walter Matho is the one guy in it who's kind of like, well, I'm, my job is to not let people die. 
And so I'm going to try to let that happen. And he's even with the with the stuff with the with the Tokyo guys, he's kind of trying to grope towards not woke because they didn't have that same kind of concept as widespread back then, I guess. But yeah. like how they they like oh, there's an undercover cop on the train. Uh, it, it, how do we know? How, he hasn't done anything, and he's like, could be a she. And throughout yeah. the movie, he keeps going back to the idea like it could be a woman who's the undercover cop, and then the undercover cop happens to be dressed as a hippie. Right. And Walter Matthau at the end sees him from behind and just sees the long hair. Is like, don't worry, miss, we're gonna we're get in an ambulance over here. <laughs> yeah. That he is, even in his attempt to be open minded, he is he is still incredibly closed minded. But the that's, uh, that's one of the cool things about this movie, though, is you have this. Um, You've got the the hostage situation going on, and then you've also got off to the side this other sort of mini mystery of who's the undercover cop. Yeah. Uh, and then it occurred to me not only through the naming conventions, but with who's the undercover cop. I was like, this is Quentin Tarantino completely ripped this off for Reservoir Dogs, obviously. Well, he was yeah he was he was he was he was borrowing from it. You know, see, yeah. seeing as seeing as I just wrote a comic book story that's like Jason on Pelham One Two Three, I can't right. <laughs> I can't go after Quentin Tarantino for stealing some names, but but like uh the uh, but it's very like um it's there's a oh well, I don't remember what I was gonna say actually let's if if you could take out that part in case anyone from involved in Jason tries to sue me at some point that'd be great uh, sure the, <laughs> the um the it's there's a well, you were saying Quentin Tarantino uh, take took it for Reservoir Dogs. Yeah, just I pick think it it's up. definitely it's definitely. I wouldn't say he like is stealing from it, but he's definitely borrowing from it in the way that he does. But it's such a he was upfront about it. You know, it's not like he tried to get away with anything. No, that's true. He he didn't make a movie that was called like The Stealing of Oldham Four right. Five Six, <laughs> and, and he's like, I've never heard of the old one. There, there was one before. But there's something about the movie that is so specific to the time it's in, but is also very universal in terms of like people are always going to be butting heads about different conflicts and crises. Yeah. And there's so many things in it that are so like the 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 thieves in it are so not cool that they become cool to me. They're like the dowdiest kind of like they all have these like big fake glasses and big fake mustaches and these big coats on. Yeah. And they're not trying to be cool. And uh, when they did the remake of it, one of many things that I didn't like about it was that John Travolta, I think, was supposed to be kind of like a cool, like funny bad guy. Uh-huh. And what I like so much about the bad guys in this is that they feel like four dudes who are just in this job together and they're not cool. They're not funny. They don't particularly like each other. They don't particularly yeah. trust each other. And it's just like, this is a job. And there's, it was only during the quarantine that I finally read the book that it's based on. And it was interesting. Is it good? The book. It's pretty good. There's so much of the there's so much in the movie that's good that comes directly from the book, like lines of dialogue that come straight from the book. Oh, cool. And the plot mostly runs the same like uh Walter Matthau's character is kind of a combination of two characters that are in the in the movie in the book. Uh-huh. But the book is one, it's like crazily overwritten. Like there's so there's so much overwriting, but also it's told from a couple different characters inner monologue points of view so the undercover cop you know who he is through the entire book because you're in his head oh, while okay. he's, he's like should i do anything i'll just sit here for right now i'm dating this girl who's a revolutionary who hates the police oh, she didn't wow. like it and i revealed i was a policeman oh boy was this mean for that let me have a fan let me have a flashback about when we had sex one sometime it was like and uh robert shaw's character you learn a lot more about like who he is and and, and it was like 
the movie benefits so much from stripping it down yeah. to where you're not really in anyone's head. You don't really know anyone's backstory. This is yeah. just a day that happened to them. And you are kind of – you're just seeing people in a city kind of thrown together in this instance as opposed to like, okay, here's our five main characters that we're really going to get to know yeah. and everybody else. But, there's, but I was amazed re- reading through the book. I'm like – it was almost like – disappointing at times where I would be like, oh, this whole section of dialogue that I love from the movie is just taken wholesale from the book. And I should think that's great. Right. Instead, I was like, oh, I kind of wanted that to be a special thing for the movie. Yeah, but yeah. They're, they're literally just taken from the book. But it's a very, it's like a, there was like, you learn more about the characters, but it feels like a lesser experience in some ways. Yeah, I think the movie, um, because it was a product of its time, was underdone. There wasn't like if that, I mean, I didn't see the remake, but I, I picture if it would be made today uh, as a, as a brand new movie, the Walter Matthau character would have had some like falling down esque backstory like Robert Duvall had where it's his last day uh, on the job and he's too old for this shit. And it oh, just, yeah, in the new one, it's like it's Denzel Washington plays that part. And it's like, he had a history where he got in trouble with the yeah, law a little bit. Of so course. Like, he's under suspicion somewhat. And 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 John Travolta's character is like a former day trader who's trying to use this crisis to like sink the the price of gold or something. Like yeah, it's, you don't it's need that. Such stuff. a more elaborate plot. Yeah, you just don't need it. And the uh, it was almost like like there's something inherently ridiculous about someone taking a train for ransom because yeah, as as they keep pointing out in the movie, they're like uh, Jerry Stiller's like I think I figured out what they're gonna do. They're going to – I think they're going to fly the train to Cuba. Yeah. And, and Walter was like, you're a sick man, Rico. But, yeah. uh, the, but like they keep pointing out this is a crazy plan. It's a stupid plan. Like they're trapped underground. And it's almost like in the remake they were like, this is a dumb plan. We better try to clever it up a little bit. Instead they just yeah. overcomplicated everything. But I love the idea that like uh, Zachary Garber went to work. The first time we see him, he is literally napping on a bench uh, outside, of the, outside the office. Yeah. And then – he expected he was going to have a boring day. He had this incredibly ridiculous day. He and then Rico then have to go around trying to find the final man uh, who wasn't caught. And then he's just going to go home. And like tomorrow he's going to go back to work and like that's it. And yeah. everybody else is just going to go back home and do whatever they do the next day. And he's such a one-man show. Uh, it's almost surprising that he takes Rico with him at all because in a modern film it would have been such a bigger action sequence when he finally goes down into the tunnel at the end to mm-hmm. you know to solve the crime and face Robert Shaw he's by himself he would it would have been such a and i'm sure in the remake it was it was played up as such a bigger thing with like a squad like, of elite cops behind him and i'm trying to remember what happens they're like on a bridge and i think there's a gunfight but i can't quite remember hold on i i apologize i have to uh, I keep hearing the doorbell ringing, and it's probably coming through on the recording, but I should see who it is. That's right. Uh, Go ahead. I don't expect anyone, but I'll be right back. Sorry about this. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabrielle Collins, and this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Colin Bridgerton has returned from his travels abroad. Is betrothal written in the stars for the eligible bachelor? Meanwhile, the ton is reverberating with speculation of who holds Lady Whistledown's pen. We're discussing it all. I sit down with Nicola Coughlin, Luke Newton, Shonda Rhimes, and more to offer an exclusive peek behind the scenes of each episode of the new season. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then... 
fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher. I'm so excited to tell you about the brand new series of The Girlfriends. In season one, we told you about the murder of Gail Katz at the hands of my ex-boyfriend, Bob. At one point, a woman's torso washed up on Staten Island and was misidentified as Gail. She spent nine years in Gail's grave, and then she just disappeared. It's almost like it's become this moral obligation to find her. And that's what we're going to do. Find this missing girlfriend and tell her story. With the help of some of your favorite girlfriends from season one, like my producer, Anna. Oh, my God. My friend, Dr. Mindy Shapiro. Hi, it's Dr. Shapiro, and I'd like to speak with the deputy medical examiner. And of course, Gail's sister, Elaine Katz. Having no closure, it kills you. Join us as we try to solve a 35-year-old cold case. It's not going to be easy, but it's going to be one hell of a ride. (gasps) What? I can't believe this. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Elliot Connie, and this is Family Therapy. My best hopes, I guess, identify the life that I want and, and work towards it. I never seen a man take care of my mother the way she needed to be taken care of. I get the impression that you don't feel like you've done everything right as a father. Is that true? That's true. And I'm not offended by that. Thank you for for going through those things and thank you for overcoming them. Wow. Thank God for the limits. Every time I have one of our sessions, our sessions be positive. It just keeps me going. I feel like my focus is redirected in a different aspect of my life now. So, how'd we do today? We did good. The Black Effect presents Family Therapy. Listen now on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. All right, Elliot is back. Uh... We, we heard the beginning when the doorbell rang and you had to leave. And then I just want to let you know from my point of view what happened is I saw you leave the room and shut the door. And then I heard these sort of muffled voices. And I totally thought I was going to be in the middle of a Hitchcock movie for a second <laughs> where I would hear a scuffle break out and you would f- fling the door open bleeding and like crawl back to the computer and say, Chuck, solve the crime. <laughs> Find my killers. Avenge me. Oh, if only. Oh, man. It truly felt like a Hitchcock movie all of a sudden. I was like, oh, man, I'm going to hear a gunshot any second now. If only my life was that interesting. In fact, just to, <laughs> just to uh, tear away the curtain for the audience, uh, we have a, a shower drain that is ba- has backed up, and it's really disgusting. And so that was the plumbers arrived a little earlier than I expected. And and not like the movie plumbers who are like, yeah, yeah, we're the plumbers. Right. You know, you, we paint houses. <laughs> but like uh, just, uh, just guys who handle plumbing. So. What uh? What neighborhood you in out there? I meant to ask. Earlier. I live in Eagle Rock, which is like oh, uh, that's where I lived. Oh, really? Oh, I didn't realize that. That's right, because you know what? Now I'm remembering 
when we had that call with you and Andy Daly, we were joking about the rock, right. the actual eagle rock. Right, and that's right. And Andy Daly was like, it doesn't look that much like an eagle, you know? Yeah. I lived on Las Colinas Avenue. Okay. Sort of behind Senior Fish. Oh, okay. Yeah, we're not too far away. We're kind of like on the, we're closer to where like the Trader Joe's is. Yeah, yeah. And uh, Man, yeah, we, we just moved here last year. I really love it out here. I think it's, I think that's it's cool. We, we, we got a house, and I'm like, all right, I could see living here until I die. This is how it's pretty good. This is yeah. pretty good. I could, we can stay in this house for it's nice. 30, 40 years, and then some, one day I'll just, they'll just <laughs> find me on a lounge chair outside, just not breathing anymore. That sounds all right. You right. Know? <laughs> so uh, we can wind it up with Pelham. We were talking uh, when the doorbell rang about how a movie, uh, and I imagine the remake was just so much more overblown at the end, and you were talking about how they had some big shootout on the bridge. I think so. I'm trying to remember it. Well, because it wasn't like it was like – I don't think it was like an army of cops versus the hostages, but it was definitely like uh, Denzel Washington become more, becoming more of a man of action than Walter Matthau yeah. in this. And the uh, – what I, what I was want to say was that – and I know people who like that, the remake, somewhat. It's not my it's – a, it's a Tony Scott movie, and like Tony Scott movies have never been like totally my cup of tea except for something yeah. like – the Hunger. True Romance. Yeah, True, true Romance. Yeah. Like, like The Hunger, which I think is such a strange movie where you're watching totally. it and you're like, I can't quite tell what this – this movie is beautiful, but I don't really know what's going on at any given point with these characters. Yeah. But uh, the – it's like uh, – it makes me think because like The Taking of Pelham 123 is such a – I feel like if there's any movie that is like this is New York in the mid-70s, like this yeah. is that movie. And from the – with the remake – they really had a chance to be like, this is post 9-11 New York. Like, let's show that in a movie. And they, like, didn't do it. They, like, couldn't pull it off. They, I mean, I think they just weren't trying that hard. But yeah. I wanted to point to the movie Inside Man, the Spike Lee movie, which is yeah. great and which I think is that movie. Like, Inside Man is the taking of Pelham 1, 2, 3, 4, immediately post 9-11 New York, where it was, like, uh-huh. it's really talking about, like, what's going on in the city and what it is, what it lives, what it's like to live in that city, but still super suspenseful. And there's still funny parts in it. And the only thing that rings not totally true to me is Denzel Washington's sexy wife, just lying around in her underwear all day, calling him on the phone constantly to get him to come home to have sex with her. And it, while he's busy yeah. with this case and it's like, this is, is someone from a different movie calling him? Like what's going, it's, right. it feels so, <laughs> so strangely out of place. But, uh, the, but uh, that's the movie where if there's any movie that kind of like picks up the torch from taking Pelham uh-huh. to do the original, it's not the remake, but it's the uh, but it's Inside Man. Yeah, I mean, I was just sort of thinking about the third act and the end of this film is is such a great third act because there's so much suspense with um, the literal ticking clock, which is always fun when someone literally starts a timer in your movie. And you've got this cash on the way. You've got Mathau bluffing. Um You've got the the runaway train being intercut with uh, with Mathau going down there by himself to confront Robert Shaw, and there's kind of a lot going on, but it's still sort of uh, I keep saying lo-fi. It's just it's underdone in that perfect '70s movies way. Oh yeah, I, I mean there's a there's a sequence that where they they've got to get the money together to, and this is at a time period when New York as a city had no money. Like this is right before the like. Yeah, he even said in the movie, dead. like, we, we can't afford this, yeah, this as a city, a million, a million dollars. The idea that New York City can't get bring up a million dollars in cash at a given moment is a crazy scenario, but that's how it was at the time. And, like, New York really looked like it was, you know, dying. It was just crumbling. And there's a sequence where they have to get the cash to them, and you're just watching 
women's hands counting out bills and putting rubber bands yeah. around the stacks and they throw the bills into a shopping cart that has to be walked down the uh, down the hallway and there's a in yeah. the beginning of Zodiac there's like a an inter-office shopping cart like this that's being walked around and I have to assume it's a it's a Pelham homage. Yeah, homage yeah. but like and uh and then they got to put it in a bag and the bag's got to be handed to some cops in a cop car and the cop car literally has to race from the bank downtown up to where the to where the train is and it's like the it's so like you're saying it's lo-fi there's no like well we'll just well okay we'll venmo the money to your account and they're like "Hmm, (laughs) the 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 transfer got got interrupted oh no it's like this is physical money we've got to count it we've got to stack it we got rubber bands around it we got to put it in a bag we got to hand it to guys in a car they got to physically take it up there then it's got to be taken onto the tracks to take the train and it's so like a and they shot most of it I think all of it. I'm not. I don't. I'm trying to remember if any of it was shot outside of New York. Like almost all of it was shot. I don't think so. It's, I think it's all like the, in the in the abandoned subway station that is now where the New York Transit Museum is, and yeah. just on the streets of New York. So that's the other thing that's like a personal thing for me is seeing these street corners that I know really well, like seeing Astor Place in 1974, and seeing like yeah. Union Square East. These areas that because I went to NYU, like I was around all the time, and seeing them just and like being like that's what that building was before it was a Barnes and Noble and stuff like that. Like there's a um uh, yeah there's a movie called The Landlord, the uh Hal Ashby movie with Bow Bridges that's set in Park Slope, Brooklyn, where I lived for a number of years. And it's uh-huh. set and it's from nineteen sixty eight, I think. And so it's Park Slope, which is now like the most it's I mean it's a very pleasant place to live. It's like a, it's like the most kind of like bougie you know, yeah. uh, it's where the big food co-op is and you can't afford to buy a house there. They all cost, you know, millions of dollars, these old brownstones. But it's set when this was still – when it was still a majority black neighborhood and white people uh-huh. with money were just starting to come in. And there's so many buildings in it where I'm like, oh, that's what that building was. Like that yoga studio used to be a yeah. used to be a hairdresser's. And there's a scene right. where – Bo Bridges is driving his car, and in the background, you can see a pizzeria sign that has this huge Coca-Cola bottle cap on it. And until four years ago, that sign was still up on that pizzeria. And I would love to oh, see wow. it and be like, oh, I know that pizzeria. I go there. And it was and this sign was there at the time. So like it's there's a I'm I'm not I'm not above getting a thrill out of seeing things that I've known in in movies. There's a Oh, totally. There's a very bad movie called Robot in the Family, uh starring uh-huh. Joe Pantoliano. Uh <laughs> That uh, it's ve- it's not very good at all, but so much of it is shot around the antique stores that are between 14th Street and like 12th Street on Broadway in Manhattan. And again, like that uh-huh. was the neighborhood I was walking through all the time. So it'd be like it's a terrible movie, but watching it, I still got that thrill of like, I know that store. I've walked by yeah. there. I know that stretch <laughs> of pavement. But uh, team went Pell 123 like it. It benefits so much from being in the city. And apparently it was a nightmare to shoot. I was listening. Yeah. Watching an old interview recently with the with Joseph Sargent, the director who passed away a few years ago. When did he die? Uh-huh. Uh, he died in he died about six years ago. And he was talking about how because they were literally in a subway tunnel all day, every day shooting, that it was so depressing and just. And I hadn't yeah. even thought about that. It was like, oh yeah, they didn't. They were the air in the subway tunnels is is horrible, and it was probably oh, yeah. worse then. And there was no sunlight. Like it must have been so nasty to be just spending all day in a subway car like yeah. the uh 
And it all comes. No, I read up some of that too. It sounded miserable, terrible, and it all comes through in the movie. Like the characters in the movie really feel like they hate being there. Like, yeah, it's so. <laughs> yeah. Whereas in like a, in the remake, like they can get an internet signal down there, and this is before they had Wi-Fi in the real subway systems, and like the characters yeah. seem to be able to like open the doors for fresh air. And it's like, that's not how the subway works. Like the air down there right. is gross. <laughs> and also they keep the doors closed. But uh, it's such a, uh, oh, now I don't even remember how we, how we got into this, but there, there's, it's that, it's a, it's a lo-fi world like you're saying, and it feels real. Like it feels like, oh, we're, yeah. we're really in this space because they were in that space. They were really, when that, when you see the, the cop car like tearing down the street and the, the one cop who's driving, he turns to the other and goes, I've always wanted to do this. We're scaring the shit out of everybody. And yeah. people are like diving out of the way of this car. Like, I mean, they, those were. It looked the, real. All the street stuff looked really good. Yeah. It sort of reminded me of Dog Day Afternoon at times, how that felt really real too. Yeah, yeah. Because it's all like, we're going to take a real place and we're going to shoot in it. And they, I mean, Dog Day Afternoon is another one where it's like, New York's a, a grimy, gross place to live. Let's take a look at yeah. like what, what life is like for ordinary people there. And uh, yeah. there's a... I remember the first time I saw I was I was it was a while before I finally saw the French Connection, which is kind of like in a similar type of movie. And uh-huh. I had a real chip on my shoulder when I finally saw. It. I was probably like twenty when I finally saw it because I kept comparing it to Pelham One Two Three and being like, "This is best picture." I, Pelham One Two Three is a better movie than this. But uh, the French Connection is great too. But how you see these scenes where it's like Gene Hackman living kind of like a blue collar life as a cop. And then the drug dealers living a white collar rich life, but even the drug dealers' stuff looks really chintzy and bad. Like even their furnishings yeah. and their houses look like seventies crappy. And there's just something about it that's like, like I was saying earlier, like on film it looks so attractive to me to live in this like grimy, ugly world. But, yeah. but in real life, living in it, you'd be like, this is terrible. I need something like this is. I wish I didn't live in yeah. a place where everything was dirty. And the best I could get is this shag carpet that looks. That's like orange, <laughs> this orange shag carpet. Right. You know? <laughs> uh, well, I think the last thing we should cover with the movie is that very last scene and shot when they, uh, you know, they set it up so uh, obviously, but so well with the sneezing and the gesundheit throughout the movie. You know, it's going to be how the guys found out. And uh, they end the movie on a almost like in a sitcom way. Oh, it's really yeah, kind of great. It's, if, if anyone's <laughs> listening who hasn't seen it, one, stop listening and then go watch it but like yeah. <laughs> all throughout uh martin balsam's character who is the most reluctant of the of the thieves uh he's an ex-motorman on the subway and he's he's the one who yeah. has the know-how so that they can pull off this heist but he's the least uh hardened of all the of the of the, the three others robert shaw who is you you pick up is a mercenary who has commanded right. african armies and uh shooting rebels and uh, Hector Elizondo, who's like – they make a bigger case of this in the book, but he's like the guy who was kicked out of the mafia for being too crazy. Like he's too violent uh, for the mob. Okay. And that makes sense. in the book, he is just such a disgusting, despicable person, and he spends most of the book trying to figure out how to have sex with the prostitute on the train uh, right. <laughs> while still doing – and like the book, is, the book is so much more sex-heavy than the movie is. And Earl Hindman, who's like the quiet – uh, but also clearly a professional soldier. And I, it's hard for me to, every time I watch it, I'm like, oh, that's Wilson from Home Improvement. And he's one of the hijackers. Right. This, <laughs> the guy that Tim Allen's always getting great advice from. But uh, uh, but uh, Martin Balsam has a cold. And yeah, and over the radio, he's always sneezing and Walter Matthau will be like, tight. And then they go to Martin Balsam's house because he's the last name on their list of motormen who are fired from the job who are suspects and he gets and he lives in this disgusting apartment it's so gross yeah it's really it's like gross. a rat hole <laughs> and there's like all these boxes of old cereal sitting on like just in piles on the on the 
refrigerator, like against the window. Yeah. It's so lived in <laughs> gross. And he's like uh, wearing this like greasy bathrobe. Like he looks so dis- – he's wearing like these these – soiled long johns it's so dis- it's great it's so disgusting and yeah it's all gross and they get and they talk to him and he starts feeling really cocky and is like how dare you come in here and accuse me of this stuff da, 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 da. and as they're leaving he sneezes and yeah Walter Mather goes tight and then just like opens the door and just like gives him yeah sitcom look yeah. like wah, wah. <laughs> it's, so great. it's so funny and it's like it's something I went through real cycles with first being like oh that's kind of a two that's too silly a way to end this movie, but then really loving it. Cause it's like, yeah, yeah. These are just these dudes. And like, there's so much you can read into Walter Matthau's face, but that expression is so New York to me. Cause it's like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, seriously? Yeah. Like, uh-huh. come on, dude. Like, and, uh, <laughs> but also like the look in his face, but he almost seems disappointed that that's how they caught the guy it was because the guy sneezed, you know, at the wrong time. Yeah. Oh, it sounds like it sounds like there's some kind of crisis going on in my family at the moment uh, outside the door. So I shouldn't That's unfortunately right. take too much longer. But uh, I apologize. This has been a this has been a much more disjointed recording than I hoped it would be. But it's like a, That's okay. But the, but sorry to get back to the ending. But there's something about that look that is so like uh, it's just another thing where like you can't write in the script. Detective Garber gives a look to the almost to the camera as if to say, "Can you fucking believe this guy?" Like. You, it's, yeah. the only, it's something you can only do when you have Walter <laughs> Matthau in the cast, you know. And yeah, I'll have to go back and look at the look at the script and see how they describe it. But it's just one of those moments that, like, it feels like yeah, it feels sitcommy. But at the same time, it's like in the world of this movie, this is just a crazy thing these people have gone through. It's not the biggest event in their lives, you know. And so yeah. for him to be like, all right. Okay, well, we're done with this now. I mean, in him, right. at least he knows he doesn't have to drive around anymore looking, talking to people. But I don't know. It's, it's such a uh, – I'm, I'm just such a <laughs> – there's so much about this movie that uh, I, I'm recommended to people all the time. And when I'm recommending it, I'm like, oh, this feels so keyed into the things that I like. It's hard for me to imagine right. other people enjoying it the same way, but I hope they do. No, it's great. It's a wonderful movie. Um, we'll do a speed round here at the end. We do five questions and uh, – I know that uh, both of our families are probably mad at us right now. So, oh, very much so. Uh, we, this has been a podcast-heavy week for me. So, I think my <laughs> wife is like another one. Okay. All right, we'll do it. Uh, we'll do it very fast. What's the first movie you remember seeing in a theater? The first one I remember seeing in a theater was probably like a re-release of Cinderella. I think. I think that's the first time okay. I remember seeing like going as a kid. My or either that or when they re-released Fantasia when I was a kid and my parents were like, we're going to see this movie. This is a special movie. And we waited outside the movie theater in the rain for some reason until the time for the movie to start. I think that might be my first one, but it was, it, I'm sure it, it's some, it's some Disney re-release was, is my first right. memory. Uh, first R rated movie you saw. That was period. I, either Robocop. I know it must've been Robocop. Like when I was eight and my dad borrowed it from his friend and was like, I heard this is really cool and we watched it and it was the most, it was the bloodiest thing I'd ever seen. And I have this such a clear memory of Ed 209 killing that guy and me putting my hands in front of my eyes just by in shock. And then like uh-huh. slowly pulling the hands away from my eyes. Cause I really right. want to see what happened next. <laughs> and my dad was not like, uh, let's turn this off right now. He just kept it going. So we watched the whole movie. Yeah, yeah. It was either that or, uh, <laughs> we used to watch coming to America a lot when I was a kid. Like oh, it's, great it's movie. so funny. Sure. And, I haven't seen it in years, but I mean to rewatch it. Like, and there's so much about it that I'm sure I did not get as a kid. Yeah. But it's so funny. Uh, all right, number three, and I asked the other guys this. This is the standard question, but you do a bad movie podcast. Uh, but I still have to ask this question: Do you actually walk out of a bad movie? Uh, there have been movies I've watched 
at home where I've been like, I don't need to finish this. But if I'm seeing a movie in the theaters, I can really only think of one movie that I've walked out of, which was uh, my grandmother, when I was a teenager, we went to the Museum of Modern Art and Norman Mailer's Dead Men Don't Dance was playing there. <laughs> and neither of us knew what it was. And my grandmother was like, ah, free movie. Okay. And about 10, wow. minutes, 10 minutes in, my grandmother said, this isn't for us and got, and got up and we walked out. <laughs> All right, number four, uh, you're a big fan of uh, old school comedies and comedies from the screwball comedies. What classic comedy do you wish you had been able to be in a writer's room if they had one? Uh, I really wish I could have worked on any Marx Brothers movie, even the bad ones, even like even like Go West. Like they seem to be such they're, – they're so important to me as like a singular comedic energy and talent and – I just there there's there are people where every now and then I'll realize like oh I'm never gonna meet this person like uh, the uh, my wife and I we took a trip to uh, Springfield Illinois years ago so I could see Lincoln's tomb in his house and it was only when I was standing at Lincoln's tomb that I was like oh I'm never gonna meet Abraham Lincoln like it really right. it really hit me hard <laughs> I'm never gonna get to meet him. I think about him every day and I'm never gonna get to see him but the Marx Brothers are similar like just to, I'm sure it would have been a terrible experience but because yeah. they didn't stick they didn't stick to their lines and Groucho was genuinely nasty to people like he just was always making fun of people and they were very hard to get a hold of they, anyone who worked on a march for this movie they seemed to not enjoy the experience but i really wish that i could have just to just to have like in been around their energy you know just to have met yeah. them although harpo everyone says nothing but good things about he's the one brother everybody loved oh yeah yeah although right, the, the, one, the and- one movie he made that was just him was terrible but anyway <laughs> <laughs> Uh, and then finally, movie going one on one. What is what is your movie ritual at the theater? Where do you go? Where do you sit? What do you eat? Um, uh, that's a good question. For years and years, I would go to when I when I was young, I would go to the film forum after work, and I would bring in a package of goldfish with me, and I would just eat that throughout the movie. And then, <laughs> I, by the end of the movie, I'd be so tired that I would be falling asleep and my eyes would close and the movie would continue in my head. And then I'd open my eyes and be like, this isn't what was happening in the movie. Like, so they're <laughs> like the movie. Um, I live in fear, the Akira Kurosawa movie. I'm still not quite sure how uh-huh. it ends because I can't remember what I imagined while watching it and what how right. it actually happened. <laughs> but, uh, these days it's, uh, Dan, I listened to Dan's episode. He was talking about going to the Alamo draft house. Like that's pretty much the place that, place i go to see movies when i i very yeah. rarely get to see movies the, in the theater these days uh but i'll go there and i'll order there they have like huge chocolate chip cookies and while i'm eating the cookies i'm like this is bad for me and i'll just sit and, right. and watch the movie and uh i'll get there you know a half hour ahead of time and like read a book until the movie starts and there's always nice. that moment when the lights are really going down and i can't read anymore and for a split second i'm like but i was reading and then i remember that right. i'm about to see a movie and i'm like oh, oh no this is good this is why i'm here <laughs> That's awesome, Elliot. This has been a lot of fun, man. Thanks for taking the time. Well, thank you so much for having me. This has been so much fun, and uh, and I really appreciate it. And I just apologize that uh, my life is a chaotic whirlwind, and so no, this has been great. <laughs> Where can people follow you on Twitter? Uh, please follow me at just at Elliot Kalen, E L L I O T T K A L A N at Twitter, and uh, you'll see me occasionally tweet about politics or. The, for a little bit, I was tweeting about the closed captions on the print of Bad Taste that's in uh, Amazon Prime. Oh, and now I'm being, <laughs> I'm being called somewhere, so unfortunately I have to run. But uh, All right. Thanks a lot, Elliot. Thank see you, you later. Uh, t- see you later. Talk to you later. Thanks. All right, everyone. I hope you enjoyed that as much as I did. 
Uh, I think through the magic of editing, Ramsey will be able to put that together in a pretty coherent story. But we had a lot of weird interruptions, stops and starts, and uh, we we worked our way through it. This is called uh, podcasting in quarantine. But Elliot was a true gentleman and uh, a champion for kind of working his way through that with me and being patient as uh, my recording stopped and I had to restart. But that just shows what a good guy he is. So thanks to Elliot for coming on. Follow him on Twitter, uh, like he mentioned. And um, we all look forward to that animated show coming out on Fox next year. That sounds fantastic, uh, as well as the comic book that he was writing for. So support Elliot any way you can. Support the Flophouse over at Max Fun. Those are great guys. It's just a treasure trove of uh, hysterical podcast about bad movies to listen to. So I'm sad this is over. But uh, I'm glad we got to pull it off and get these three in a row in the can. So big thanks to Elliot and big thanks to the Flophouse and Max Fun for this uh, crossover series. And thanks for listening, everyone. We'll see you next week. Movie Crush is produced, edited, and engineered by Ramsey Yunt here in our home studio at Pont City Market, Atlanta, Georgia, for iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. A new season of Bridgerton is here. And with it, a new season of Bridgerton, the official podcast. I'm your host, Gabby Collins. And this season, we are bringing fans even deeper into the ton. Watch season three of the Shondaland series on Netflix. Then fall in love all over again by listening to Bridgerton, the official podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to catch a new episode every Thursday. Hey, girlfriends, it's me, Carol Fisher, back with another season of the global number one podcast, The Girlfriends. Last time, we investigated the murder of Gail Katz. This time, we're uncovering the identity of the woman who was buried in Gail's grave for a decade before she disappeared. Join me and the rest of the club as we tell her story. Listen to season two of The Girlfriends, Our Lost Sister on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, I'm Michael Rappaport. And I'm Kibi Rappaport. And together we're hosting Rappaport's Rappaport's Reality Reality Podcast. We have a passion for reality TV, and we're inviting you into our living room. We're dissecting the drama, and we're giving praise to the single greatest form of entertainment on television today. That is right. Reality TV is the greatest form of entertainment on television today. Listen to Rappaport's reality with me, Kibi Rappaport. And me, Michael Rappaport, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcast.